I would invite you to take your Bible or the bulletin and look as we read together from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. It's only 12 verses long. We're going to be looking at the entire psalm today. I had scheduled to start the psalm series around this time period kind of mapped out which psalms, we can't obviously do all of them during the summer, and so had mapped out which ones I thought we would try to cover on uh, Sundays, and I had planned on this one for today quite a while ago, but even as I was preparing uh, this week, was just struck again about how God is superintending His Word and giving us His Word at the right time when we need it. Uh, I think you'll see that as well as we read Psalm 2. I'm going to invite you to listen as I read to you. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. To get today, I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word and we want to understand it. We want to have a deeper understanding than that which we bring to it already. We want to have a right understanding. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to be present even at this very moment. Open our eyes, open our minds that we might understand what your word says and that we might be filled with hope and peace as we see the gospel of your grace and mercy to us once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Legend of King Arthur and Camelot. The Saga of the Star Wars movies. The Ancient Story of Gilgamesh. The Incredible Story of the Lord of the Rings. The children's story of the Chronicles of Narnia. What do all these have in common? Well, perhaps multiple things, but the main thing that I want you to think about today is they all tell a story about a king. And isn't it interesting that throughout time and across cultures, there are these wonderful stories that we have been given that tell us about a king. 
And often these stories, ones that I've mentioned and others as well, often these stories tell us about a king who's under whose leadership the land flourishes and the people thrive. But then the king is away for a time period for one reason or another and the land languishes. The people suffer. And there's a promise that the king is going to come back again. Why is it that stories like that grip our attention and grip our imagination? Why is it that there are so many stories like that that are such uh, classics for us in our culture and beyond? I think it's because that deep down at the very core of who we are, we have been wired by God himself to desire a king. That, that desire goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created by the King, the Lord God Almighty. And they were created to be in relationship and a fellowship with that King. Because of their sin, because of their disobedience to the King, they were kicked out of the Garden. And ever since that time period, ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, we have been searching once again for a king. It is part of who we are. It's part of our DNA, as it were. It's how we've been created. The need for a king. Everybody's looking for a king to serve. It's why Israel in the Old Testament cried out for a king. They looked around, they saw the nations around them, and they said, well, we want a king too. This need for a king, this longing for a king to serve explains so many of the problems in our world. It explains so much of the sin that we see and what we experience in our own lives. We constantly go after the wrong king. We constantly serve false and cruel kings. But the Bible tells us of the true and the ultimate king. How he pursues his people, brings them into his kingdom, gives them ways of serving him, and promises that he will once again return to make all things right. Our psalm today, Psalm 2, gives us a, a picture, gives us a snapshot of this true king and of his sovereign and redemptive plan. And it calls us into a relationship with that king and promises us blessing and freedom and refuge for all who would serve the true king. You may know this, but Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. At least ten different times it's, a, it's quoted or alluded to. Three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, mention Psalm 2. The book of Acts and uh, some of the, the, the sermons that were preached by uh, Peter and Paul referenced Acts chapter 2. The letter to the Hebrews on a couple of occasions again alludes to and quotes from Psalm 2. And Revelation, the book that we've just finished studying, on three different occasions mentions Psalm 2. And the interesting thing is, is that each time it's quoted in the New Testament, it's applied to Jesus. Now that makes the preacher's job a lot easier. You don't have to wonder. There's no big reveal at the end. There's no big surprise about who this psalm is about. The New Testament tells us in an inspired way that this psalm is about King Jesus. 
So that helps us to understand that we should read and understand this psalm on a couple of different levels. The first level is the original context. Now, we don't know the specifics surrounding uh, the writing of this psalm. It's some sort of a coronation of a king, possibly David himself. Possibly Solomon or one of David's descendants. But there were nations that did not like the king surrounding this king. And they were plotting and conspiring to bring him down. But as one commentator puts it, the language of this psalm overflows its banks. The language that is used here in Psalm 2 is too big. It is too majestic for just an earthly king. It points us ultimately to the greater king and the better king, the king behind the king, if you will. It points us to God's ultimate anointed one, King Jesus. So because we have these different levels and as we focus on that second level today, it's meant to fill us with hope and peace. The world may hate the king. But the king's plan is sovereign and redemptive and it will not be defeated. And for all who come and embrace the king, there is blessing and there is freedom and there is refuge. Doesn't that sound like something we need to hear today? Isn't it something that our world needs to hear today? Let's look at those aspects of what Psalm 2 tells us. First, the world hates the king. It's in verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist couldn't be more clear. The nations, the peoples, the kings, the rulers of the world rage against, plot against, set themselves up against and take counsel against the true king, God himself. It's a picture of what is true. It's a picture of what has always been true since Adam and Eve left the garden. Nations and peoples and kings and rulers are at enmity with God. They are against him and they do not serve him as their king. They hate the Lord God Almighty, the true king. I want you to notice here, the psalmist is not surprised. Now, I know when you read the first word, why do the nations rage? It sounds a little bit like the psalmist is confused. Why is this happening? It almost sounds like he's full of anxiety and he's wringing his hands in worry. Why do these nations do this? But that is not the sense of what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is not surprised This is not a question that he is asking in desperation or anxiety. He's not wringing his hands in worry. He's questioning their sanity. Why would they think that they could rage against the one true king? Why would they even bother to set themselves up against the one true king? Don't they know that it is completely futile for them to do so? That's the sense of what he's saying. He's not surprised. This is not the first time that the nations have hated God. He knows that. And we are to know it as well. Notice we're told why that the nations hate the king. It's in verse 3. 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when we read those words for the first time, uh, perhaps a light reading, it almost sounds like God is being described as a tyrant or an ogre or a dictator who has his people enslaved in chains and cords. But the Hebrew word here for cords and and uh, the, the words that are used here for cords and bonds has much more of a sense of yoke. And the yoke in the scriptures is a picture, it's a symbol of ownership, of commitment. You think of how Jesus used it in the New Testament. He said, yoke yourself to me, take my yoke upon you. For my burden is light. Be committed to me. Be in relationship with me. Be owned by me, Jesus says. And that's what's happening here in verse 3. This is the reason why the nations hate God. Because they refuse to acknowledge that they are owned by God. That they are to respond to their true king. It's a picture of the world seeking to break free and to throw off ownership of God over them. They hate the idea of belonging to anything, especially to the one true God, of being his possession, of being connected to and being in submission to the one true God king. Isn't this the condition of the human heart? None of us likes people being in charge over us. Nobody likes us to be. Nobody likes to be told what to do. Uh, Submitting is hard. That's. The condition of every single human heart. We all struggle with it. And it evidences itself in different ways. Sometimes it's hard for the young people to submit to and obey their parents. Whom God has put in authority over them. Sometimes it's hard for employees to submit to employers. Sometimes it's hard for citizens to submit to governing authorities. It's part of who we are. And it's certainly true with respect to God, which is far worse because God is the perfect king and the perfect ruler. It's true before we were converted and it's true even after we are converted with the remnants of the old self flaring up. The human heart hates the king, the true king. And notice it's not just the true and ultimate king. Notice the world hates his anointed it's there at the end of verse 2, the word anointed. Perhaps you know this, the word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah. The world hates the true king, the world hates the Messiah. The hatred of God is real. It can feel oppressive, it can feel unrelenting at times. It's been there since Adam and Eve left the garden. But perhaps we can acknowledge that it does feel particularly bad these days. Maybe so, but we're to remember that it's nothing new. And that's the reason why it's good to know the next thing that the psalm tells us. The world may hate the king, but the king's sovereign and redemptive plan cannot and will not be stopped. The response of the king that we get in verse 4 and following is both sobering and encouraging. For those who follow him, how does the king respond? Verse four, he he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy 
hill. The king is sovereign. The king laughs and holds them in derision. Those words there have a sense of ridicule, mocking, contempt. God knows how futile it is to try to throw off his authority, to try to throw off him as the one true God. He knows what the final outcome will be. And so there is no fear, there is no anxiety here. All the king needs to do is to speak and they will be terrified by his fury. And what's the word that he speaks? We get that in verse 6. He speaks and says, I have set my king on Zion. I am in control. Listen, you who would hate me as the one true king, I am in control. I am sovereign. I have all authority. This seems particularly important for us to meditate on in these days that we find ourselves now. The world seems to be so out of control. We're dealing with pandemics. We're dealing with rioting. We're dealing with injustices. We're dealing with death. We're dealing with governing officials who are either exerting too much authority or not enough authority. We are dealing with disruption to what we used to call normal life. Let alone having to deal with all of the brokenness and the sin and the weariness that is always present in our lives and in our society. And yet, the psalm reminds us that the king in heaven is not surprised. He is not anxious. He is not inept. He is not indifferent. Our king is sovereign and he is in control and he is working all things according to his holy and perfect plan. In his timing and according to his will, he speaks, he acts, he judges, he reconciles. This must be our confidence. It must be the source of our peace and our hope that God is sovereignly in control. In moments when we experience anxiety and fear and despair, we need to take a step back, take a deep breath and remember this truth. In those moments when everything around us feels like it is out of control and in chaos, we need to step back, take a deep breath and remember this truth. The king is sovereign. But notice it's not just the king that is sovereign. That's certainly enough. But notice it's more than that. It's not just the king that is sovereign. It's also that his plan is sovereign. You see that in verse 9. God's anointed one. His king that he has established in Jerusalem. His son. What will he do in verse 9? He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The plan, God's plan that we're going to see here in just a moment, is a plan that is sovereign. It is not in question. Perhaps you remember when we actually read this psalm quoted toward the end of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, it wasn't that long ago that we were in Revelation 19. And we spent some time looking at this particular passage in chapter 19. Where the heavens are opened and John is given a vision of what's taking place in heaven. And I'll just read to you chapter 19 verse 11 and following. John says, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John reminds us in Revelation as Psalm 2 is recalled to his mind that King Jesus is sovereign. And his plan is sovereign. The rod is a symbol of rule and authority. There is nothing that can stop the plan of the king. So what is the plan? Well, we get the plan in verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. The anointed one, the Messiah, the son of God who has been crowned king of Zion. God's holy hill. He is being given the nations as his heritage. He is given the ends of the earth as his possession. This is the language of redemption. And we don't have to wonder because as I mentioned earlier, this psalm is quoted so many times in the New Testament referring to King Jesus. The plan that is being given to us in Psalm 2 in seed form eventually and fully would be known and understood. It is the gospel of grace. Jesus, the true and the ultimate king, came to the earth to achieve salvation and the redemption of his people. And Jesus redeemed people from every nation and language and people And the gospel is going out to the very ends of the earth. And the promise we have is that King Jesus is coming again. And when he does, he will bring the new heaven and the new earth and all of his glory. You see this redemptive plan of the king, this sovereign and redemptive plan of the king. It will provide the ultimate solution to the world's problem. Sin. That's part of the reason why the king is laughing in verse 4. As the world opposes him, he laughs. He laughs because he knows there's a solution. He knows that there is a reconciliation that will happen between he and his people. He knows the hatred of the world cannot stop the gospel of grace and truth. So if you are one of God's people this morning, be full of hope and be be full of peace. Our king is sovereign. And his plan of redemption is, and grace is sovereign. One last thing that we need to see from this passage is that there's a call to embrace the king. You see that call in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's as if the psalmist is saying, you world, you kings and nations who try to oppose the one true king. It is futile. The king is sovereign. His plan is redemptive and sovereign. So listen. Be wise. 
Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, respect, and kiss the Son. All three of those are imperatives. They're commands. These are not suggestions. These are requirements for all who would hear. Kiss the Son. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Kiss the Son. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it really meant a sign of submission. It was a, it was a sign of, of paying homage or honor or respect. To give oneself over in submission to another. And you can even think of that as, as someone might come into an earthly king and the king might put out a ring or a hand or something like that and the, the, the servant, uh, the, the, the citizen would come in and would kiss the hand of the king, would, would kiss the ring in, in a sign, a symbol of submission, of acknowledgement of this person being due homage and honor and respect. That's part of what it means to kiss the son. That's part of what the psalmist is saying. But there's another aspect to here as well. It's not just a sign of submission and obedience. It's also a sign of a relationship. It's the sign of intimacy. It's the sign of love. It's the sign of commitment. This is the picture of loving King Jesus more than anything else in this world. Of being in a true relationship for him, with him. And notice that there are incredible results for all who would do so. We get those at the end of verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Submission to King Jesus, being in a loving relationship with King Jesus, it is what leads us to blessing and refuge and freedom and peace and joy. It is the way to have blessing and refuge. It is to be yoked to Jesus. It's the only way of blessing and refuge. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. It was in our little hometown growing up, uh, in our elementary schools, uh, uh, schools, it was sixth grade, which back then was still part of elementary school. It was sixth grade where at the end of sixth grade, every student got a chance to pick an instrument, a musical instrument, if they wanted to play it, going into middle school where bands were available and those kinds of things. And I remember being uh, led into this room and, you know, I hadn't been uh, taught any instruments before that uh, other than like the flutophone or something like that. Um, and, and so all these instruments are laid out and they basically say, pick one. And, and so I picked one. I picked the tenor saxophone. And I never was any good at it. And you know why? Because as much as our teachers and my parents did such a wonderful job of encouraging me and even requiring me to practice, I never practiced as much as I was supposed to. Even when I was practicing, I wasn't really practicing. And I hated it. You know, if you want to be good at a musical instrument, we have so many in our church family that are, you really have to yoke yourself to that instrument. You have to commit yourself in practice and study over and over and over again. But what comes as a result of that yoking to that instrument, even though it may be difficult, even though it may be hard to do at times, what comes as a result of that? Blessing, it, the, the wonderful music that you're able to play. 
that's the picture of what we have here is we are called to yoke ourselves to Jesus. It's not always easy to do that, but that's the path to blessing. That's the path to refuge. I saw another example of this this summer. Our, this, one of the streets next to our house has been under construction for the past couple of months. And when I say construction, I mean it has been an absolute disaster zone. They were replacing gutters and drain pipes. The street was completely ripped apart. Driveways and sidewalks were destroyed to, to be rebuilt. The dust and the noise was obnoxious. But I've had to drive on that road even while it's been under construction. It's almost been like an obstacle course that changes every day. But eventually, they started making progress. And they put in the new gutters and the new drain pipes and they put in the new sidewalks and they put in the new driveways. And eventually, just recently, they laid down the new blacktop. It's like driving on butter. It is glorious. But there was a lot of pain and agony and headache and frustration for the past couple of months waiting for the road to be finished. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus is like a, the road construction happening on, in, in, in our midst. But, but what I am suggesting is that sometimes you have to go through difficult trials and tribulations in order to be able to get to the blessing, to the refuge, to the freedom. If we want blessing, if we want refuge and freedom, if we want peace and rest and joy, then we need to kiss the Son. We need to serve Him. We need to rejoice in Him. Even when it's hard. Even when we don't want to. A couple other things as we finish up here that I want you to see. This call to embrace the King is really a call that leaves no in-between. Did you notice that? Verse 12 is pretty clear. You either serve and rejoice and kiss the king and get blessing and refuge and rest, or you don't serve and rejoice and kill, uh, rejoice and kiss the son, and you get his anger and his wrath and you're destroyed. If you remain as one of the world, if you're unwilling to submit and to be yoked to the ultimate king, then there are eternal consequences. So, Hear the call this morning. Listen. Don't blow this off. Don't think that it doesn't matter. Embrace the true and the ultimate King, King Jesus. Kiss the Son. Submit to Him. Be in relationship with Him. Put your faith in Him. Serve and rejoice and kiss the Son of God. The last thing I want you to consider is that this call to embrace the king is not just for the world. It obviously applies to Christians as well. I want you to see that two ways. First of all, in verses 7 and 8. This is the father speaking to the son. You are my son. Ask of me. As your father in heaven, ask of me. And I will give you what 7 and 8 says, an incredible gift. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, this is a description of you. You are Jesus' heritage. You are the gift of the Father 
to the Son. It's as we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We're told to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What's the joy that was set before Jesus that enabled him to endure the cross? It's the gift. It's the gift that the father gives to him. It is his people. It is you. This is describing you if you are in Christ. I wonder how easy it is for you to believe that. That you are the gift of the Father to the Son. That before the foundation of the world, God set His love on you. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the Son of God, came to this earth to redeem you. You are loved. You are cherished. You are adored. You are treasured. You are the gift that Jesus One, the more that that sinks into the very marrow of our being, the more that we will be motivated and desire to submit and to serve and to love our king. I know it's it's hard. Perhaps it's hard for some more than others to actually believe that this is true, but certainly it's hard for all of us to believe it other at times, uh, sometimes in others. And in those moments, beloved God's treasured possession. You come back to what this says. This is God's word. It is true. It's what it says. And you rest your hope and you trust in what it says. One last thing as we recognize this isn't just for the world. It's a call for us to embrace the king as well. It's a call for us to trust and to submit to King Jesus always. Not just when it's easy. Even when we don't know what he's doing. Even when we don't like what he's doing in our life. I think of the book of Job. It's just a little bit before our passage in Psalm 2. Job chapter 23. This dialogue is happening between Job and his friends. Between God and the friends. Between God and Job. And in chapter 23, it's Job speaking back to God. And he says, behold, I go forward, but but he, God, is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. I don't see God. I don't see what he's doing. It's confusing to me. I can't feel him. I can't see how he's at work in this situation. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have not, I I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Job is saying, I don't see God. I don't feel like he's here. It feels like he is absent. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't like what he's doing, perhaps. But I know that when this trial is over, I will come out as gold. So I will keep his ways. I won't turn away from him. I will treasure his word. And I will keep his commandments. One pastor has asked, is Jesus your king or your consultant? Do you trust him? Are you willing to submit to him and follow him and do what he says, even when it seems uncertain or uncomfortable or hard? Therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray together. Father, on the one hand, what we're experiencing in our lives these days and in our world these days seems overwhelming. And I know that many, even perhaps some in our own church family, raise the questions, where are you? What are you doing? But even as we have these questions in our hearts and as we question things that are happening around us, we recognize that what we're seeing is not new. It's been a part of creation since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. So I pray, Father, that as we come back to this ancient poem, this ancient psalm, Psalm 2, your inspired word, you would fill us with hope and peace as we remember that you are the true king and that you are in control and that you have a plan that is both sovereign and redemptive. Fill us with hope and peace and joy as we seek to live for you this week ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.